The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry in New York. We have a show packed with great stuff this week. Later on, I'll be talking to our in-house SoftBank whisperer, Liam Proud in London, to discuss what boss Masayoshi Son does next after moves to help bolster the tech investment firm's sagging stock price paid off. And I'll be handing over to my colleagues in Asia to give us a taste of a food M&A fight in Japan. First, though, Gina Chon joins me from the West Coast to talk about the day that big tech CEOs went to Washington. Virtually, of course. Gina, thanks for coming on the show. Great to speak to you again. Thanks for having me. So, Gina, this week it's been all about on Washington, or well, not just about this, but one of the big things we've been looking at uh, coming out of D.C. Uh, are the big four uh, from the world of tech being on Capitol Hill, well, being there virtually, of course, given uh, the pandemic. Uh, so it was Jeff Bezos of Amazon's first time uh, appearing before uh, Congress, but also he was joined by his uh, peers from Apple, Facebook, and Alphabet's Google unit, although, of course, the CEO of Google is also the CEO of Alphabet. Um, and I remember we were talking beforehand, and in fact, you wrote a piece before the hearing saying, look, what if this just ends up being kind of embarrassing for, for, for the lawmakers, as it has been in the past. Because in the past, I think you said, you know, um, lawmakers weren't particularly good at asking the right questions of the right tech CEOs, correct? Yeah, they uh, show they weren't the most tech savvy people on earth. Um, asking Google CEO Sundar Pichai about the Apple iPhone when nice obviously one. he nice makes, one. yes, he makes uh, <laughs> the Android uh, and things like that that just showed um, that they didn't understand their business models and uh, how these companies make money, frankly. Yeah. So I think there was another one you mentioned as well about a question asked of Mark Zuckerberg a couple of years ago, which which also highlighted the 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 uh, the shallowness of knowledge of some of these lawmakers. Yeah, it was Mark Zuckerberg's first time before Congress in 2018, and people at Facebook were pretty nervous because he's not the most charismatic person uh, when speaking in public. Um, but the questions um, showed that he was actually going to get a fairly easy ride. He was asked by one senator how Facebook uh, would sustain its business model given it's free for users. And Zuckerberg simply replied, uh, Senator, we run ads. And that kind of turned into a joke, frankly, inside yeah. Facebook. Um, and Don't tell me they started the printing T-shirts or something, did they? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and hoodies. <laughs> of course, hoodies. Yeah. What else would you do? Um, okay, so fast forward to uh, to this Wednesday, uh, and the four turn up virtually. Um, was it as uh, an easy ride for uh, Bezos on his first time and the other three as it was before, or were congressmen and women far more prepared? They were definitely more prepared, especially on the Democratic side. I mean, you still had uh, some of the sort of off-topic questions. Republicans spent a lot of time asking them about anti-conservative bias on their platforms. Um, right. Google got asked about, you know, Gmail spam filters and things like that. Right. Uh, but they did um, talk about some of the past acquisitions that Facebook made when, say, it came to Instagram or Google and DoubleClick, double Amazon and Diapers.com, which was a blast from the past Lord. for Bezos. Uh, so yeah. it it actually ended up being a bit more revealing than um, than I thought it would be. Yeah. So were there any particularly uh, hairy moments for any of the CEOs? 
I mean, Zuckerberg uh, got one of the more early um, pointed questions about the Instagram purchase back in 2012, where it seemed like the committee got some emails um, that Zuckerberg had written around that time and and just before the acquisition, um, talking about how Instagram can hurt us and uh, buying these startups that our competitors are about um, buying time for Facebook and that Instagram was worried that if they said no to Facebook, that the social network would go into quote, like destroy mode. Um, And all this is in emails and documents. Um, So that's just one example of um, some of the things that seemed they got their hands on. And what about Jeff Bezos? I mean, his company, Amazon.com, has has had the most success from a stock market perspective, at least, of any of the four up there. I think the shares last time I looked were up around 40% since, uh, I'm dating this back to sort of about the 19th, 20th of February, when the stock markets finally, in the US, finally started realising there was a problem with the coronavirus. Um, But it's up 42% since then. Others haven't done as well, but they're all kind of looking good. and obviously, a lot of people are doing a lot of online shopping, which makes Amazon look even more important and dominant. So what happened with him? How did he fail on his first outing? Well, it seemed like at first maybe he was going to get a pass because he wasn't asked any questions in the <laughs> beginning, which was uh, a bit surprising. But then um, you did start to hear uh some of the questions about particularly around um, third party sellers, uh, a lot of whom are small businesses who are hurting now and who have complained to their representatives in Congress about some of the tactics that Amazon uses um, by such as um, taking some of the data about these third party sellers and using it to benefit Amazon's own branded products. Um, One of the Congress woman, uh, women asked about um, Amazon's purchase back in 2010 of Quincy, which runs uh, or which ran, I should say, diverse.com among other sites and about Amazon's tactics to undercut them um, in terms of pricing to basically take them down and as mm. a competitor um, and, so, and sort of how those tactics work. And Bezos you know, said that he uh, didn't quite remember all, everything from from that time, which is kind of a standard line when uh, ex- executives don't want to answer questions. Um, yep. But again, it shows the breadth of um, evidence that it seems like the committee has collected. And and they've been collecting this purely for this hearing, or is this part of, of broader attempts? I know there are there have been moves by various members of of the House to bring legislation um, forward. Yes, so it will be a part of informing um, plans on the table to uh, make antitrust laws stronger uh, around privacy and other issues. But the committee itself has been um, having its own investigation for about a year now and plans to issue a report uh, possibly by the end of this summer. And it could also be used by U.S. regulators who are looking at each of these four companies, including past acquisitions, such as uh, Facebook's purchase of Instagram, to see if uh, there were problems um, that should have been spotted uh, then and since then in terms of squashing competition and um, sort of reducing access to the market and could result in lawsuits for these companies, demands for 
restrictions on their behavior, uh, much like Microsoft had faced in the 90s with the Justice Department. Yeah, I mean, it is incredible. I'm just looking at a list now of, of the biggest acquirers in the technology world uh, by number of deals, at least over the past five years. This comes courtesy of Stiefel, the investment bank. And, uh, you know, Apple and Facebook are up there as, as two of the top 10 serial acquirers over the past five years and are still there this year doing doing, doing uh, not as many deals but you know four deals from apple and five from facebook this year i mean it's not as if they're stopping so you know the the, the dominance or the, the the desire for dominance still seems to be going although i believe that that, that tim cook of apple uh tried to ward off the whole dominant player line uh, on wednesday yeah he kept saying you know in in certain categories uh where they compete there are numerous other players and a lot of them tried to use that line i mean amazon mm. cited walmart and um mark zuckerberg turned to the chinese competitors to talk about how many other uh players are in a certain space so they mm. all try to sort of minimize their role but then again the committee presented evidence where uh internally they're touting their market power and how yeah. much they control um certain parts of uh, various product categories and, and services. So it was hard um, for them to, you know, genuinely talk about how they're just, you know, one in a sea of competitors um, when they were presented with that kind of evidence. Yeah, you just look at Apple and Amazon and, you know, they're both worth more than $1 trillion now, making them among the sort of top, well, Apple's the second largest, third largest, depending on where Microsoft is. But, you know, these are some of the largest companies on the planet. So it's it's pretty hard to get away with saying, uh, don't worry, we're just one of many players you shouldn't worry about us. Um, so, Gina, last question before I let you go. Um, where does all this take us? We, obviously, the Democrats seem to be far more prepared today or far more prepared on the more substantive, broader issues, not to undermine uh, the uh, concerns that conservatives might have, of course. Um, but um, we've got an election this year. Where, where, does, where do you see this all going in the next few months and, and more importantly, next year? Well, that's the big question. The Justice Department is trying to uh, resolve its case against Google, uh, possibly by the end of the summer. So that one seems the farthest along where you could see action before the November presidential election. Uh, the others might take a bit more time. And if there is a change in leadership in the White House, then that sort of upends uh, a lot of things. I mean, the investigations will continue, but they'll take uh, their direction from the top. And, and if that changes in uh, in the White House from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, um, then you could see a different focus. Uh, perhaps it will move more towards Facebook, where uh, Biden has been much more tougher on that social network than, than some right. of the others. So you, you could see some changes there, but I'd say if there was any sort of immediate move, it, it may be Google uh, in the sites um, in the short term. Great. Well, Gina, thanks as always for coming on. Always great to get your, your take on things. We'll speak to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I'm chatting with our columnist Sharon Lam about Japan, free food, hostile takeovers. Sharon, before we get into the, the meat of the story or the sushi of the story that you wrote, yuck, yuck, um, I've just got the first question is, what are Utai and how can I get my hands on them? <laughs> uh, Utai are very unique kind of Japanese phenomenon. They're more or less free perks that companies in Japan give to their shareholders as um, a form of 
thank you or gratitude for holding their stocks. So for instance, and they're, they're usually related to the business um, itself. So for instance, like half price plane tickets, melon, free Disneyland passes, and sometimes in this case, I guess, free dining coupons that companies give as an, an incentive for, for their shareholders um, to, to hold their shares. And there's obviously a, a minimum share requirement as well, but these are these kind of free gifts given out. Right. Okay. And so now we have another unusual, a rather unusual phenomenon in Japan, namely a hostile takeover bid, which doesn't happen that often, I believe. A restaurant chain, Utoya, is trying to fight off a bid from a rival Colawide. And Utah are playing a role in that. Can you lay out what the condition is of this conflict? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, Otoya is a restaurant chain in Japan, and they're quite well known for serving what they call kind of mom food or, or Japanese comfort food. Fundamentally, their, their top shareholder, Colawide, which runs a centralized kitchen network, um, so it has a lot of Zakaya, sushi, and steak brands, want to kind of take over this company through a tender offer. And so at the heart of this is this clash between Otoya's uh, founder's vision, which is to preserve kind of the ethos of, of the company and serve uh, this traditional Japanese food and Kalawide, which, which is aiming to, I guess, make this into more, perhaps to fit more of its centralized um, network. And they claim that they can kind of cut costs and extract synergies from this, but Kalawide has been... It's more of a cafeteria-style exactly. food. Yeah. yeah, and they've been really aggressive towards Atoya in the past. They've tried to install directors at first, which was um, initially rejected, and so now they're they're approaching this with um, an un- unsolicited bid with 3,081 yen per share, which would then, if, if it goes through, boost Hollowide stake to just over 51% from current uh, 19%. That's a pretty decent premium, right? Uh, I think you wrote like 46% or something, like a pretty big markup. Yes. Is there any reason why Utoya shareholders might not take that in the current environment when restaurants aren't doing so well? Right. Yeah, so as you mentioned, 46% premium to the undisturbed price, it's pretty high. Um, and it's actually, I think, the highest. Uh, the last time um, Atoya had seen a share price um, that high was back in 2002. And from the financial angle, it does make sense. And Atoya's kind of flattering a bit. Uh, it recently recorded its its first net loss since going public. So there are a lot of reasons why, you know, this does appear attractive. But there are also reasons, as you point out, that it might not be. One of them being that uh, Qualified is a highly leveraged um, company. It's the net debt to adjust I think four, nearly four times, and it also doesn't have a really great track record um, in, in previous acquisitions when it's, it's tried to take on uh, other subsidiaries like uh, Capcom Create, which is another sushi chain, for instance. Right, and presumably if the quality of the Otoya food goes down, the attractiveness of the coupons that shareholders get would also be similarly discounted. But I mean, yeah. you, you've noted that, that most of these, these shareholders have been loyal so far. And apparently they, you know, it's like 60% of the investor base, I believe, is retail mom and pop investors who like the food, I guess. (laughs) They've stood with Utoya so far. Do you think they'll stick around? They choose the Utah over the cash? Yeah, so I think the the company Utoya is is hoping that their retail investors, which a lot of mom and pop investors are, will remain really loyal to the dining coupons. And the risk is that they end up taking the cash instead. Um, and then buying more exposure to the company through Callaway, which also does have kind of a very attractive program. 
So it's kind of a test of, I guess, shoulder loyalty or desire to remain loyal to, to this company, despite the obvious attraction of, of the deal as well. Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, there's one not particularly compelling theory of investing that, you know, people should invest in the, these products they use. And that certainly seems to be the case to a certain extent that people just like the way Otoya tastes. They don't want Colawide to take it over and run everything out of centralized kitchens. Um, but on the other hand, you know, with that kind of markup, they can just take the money and go eat someplace else, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll see how it pans out. I know you're watching this deal closely. So anyways, thanks for talking to me, Sharon. Thanks, All right. Thanks, guys, for that. Now let's move on to our final segment. And we've got Breakingview's very own SoftBank Group Whisperer with us, Liam Proud from London. Liam, welcome back to the show. Hi, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. How's lockdown London treating you? It's good. Uncharacteristically sunny. Um, so enjoying that while it lasts. You very wisely called back in late 2018 uh, that SoftBank's probably going to suffer some, for some write-downs, and unsurprisingly, it then did. We'd look back and we see not least uh, uh, WeWork being the big problem last year. And then at the end of 2019, you said, look, there's going to be an activist. And along came Elliott Management. Uh, so two good calls. Um, now we're looking at a share price that has, uh, during the pandemic has basically doubled in four months. So what's going on and what should happen next? Yeah, so, so the context here is that SoftBank is a rather sprawling collection of assets at this point. You have um, Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce group, which is about 60% yep. of the group. Um, then the Vision Fund, which is where all the, has all these little tech bets. Um, and then you have um, Arm, a chip maker, and a, and a bunch of other things. And what he started to do under pressure from Elliot, the activist investor that you, you referenced earlier, was um, actually sell off some of those holdings um, and use the proceeds to buy back shares and retire some debt. And it was extremely successful. The share price basically doubled um, since he announced the plan in March, and it seems to keep on going up. So that's that's all good news. And it's sort of a basic um, activist uh, strategy to, to get money returned, and uh, in this case also debt reduced. Um, so it's done well for Elliot so far. Um, but your point is that there's still a long way that uh, that this can go, that Ma- Masayoshi-san, yeah. who runs SoftBank, can still do a lot more to, to increase it. And that's based on what? So the stock price has doubled. Where does yeah. that leave it now? So, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think if, if, if I were Masayoshi-san, who is, you know, he, he is SoftBank to, to all intents and purposes. He yeah. founded the group and is the biggest shareholder. If, if I were him, I'd feel a bit ambivalent about what's happened in the past few months. On the one hand, I've got, a lot richer because the share price has gone up so much and my strategy of sort of you know simplifying the group seems to be working but on the other hand that sort of that success undermines the whole point of SoftBank existing as a kind of tech holding company right because right. if if it is better and more valuable once sold off and broken up into bits then why does it need to exist at all so yeah. so the point of the piece that I wrote was basically to say look it's it's worked. You've, you've doubled the share price. But there's still a big discount. And the discount is, you know, how much is the company worth relative to what its assets are worth, if you, if you just add up all the bits and bobs. And it's still right. about half the value of the assets. So the real question that I would have if, if I were Elliot is, why stop now? You, you can keep going, we can all get a hell of a lot richer here. Yeah. So what, what's he got left to, to, to do? So obviously, I mean, you, you referenced one earlier, Alibaba. <clears throat> Yeah, that's the that's, big, that's he's, the big he's, job. He's been, he, yeah, he's he sold some of that, right? But you, but he could sell a lot more. Yeah, in t- typical SoftBank fashion, he 
sort of use some very complex derivative, derivative transactions to to realize value out of the Alibaba stake, but it's still right. very big. Um, it's so big that it's it's worth more than um, the whole equity of SoftBank. Um, so if if you want to <laughs> if you want to realize some value from this thing, I mean there are, there's a clean way to do it, which is you just hand that stake to shareholders. Um, yeah. That would that would that would move the needle more than anything else, really. Um, it's yeah. something that he is not going to be particularly inclined to do. He is so proud of that bet. He talks about it all the time. He had this famous meeting with Jack Ma about 25 years ago. That's the founder of Alibaba, yeah. where he signed an investment and said, you know, we didn't even talk about business strategy or revenues. I just I just trusted the guy and, and I knew others would trust him. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of kind of sentiment behind that investment. Um, but on the other hand, you can see some signs that maybe the two groups are drifting apart. So Jack Ma used to be on uh, SoftBank's board and Masayoshi Son used to be on Alibaba's board. They've both left each other's boards now. Um, so, I mean, maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into that. But, you know, add that together with what's happened to the share price when he has sold down a little bit. I mean, I'd be thinking about it if I were him. Yeah. I mean, there are other things you can sell, of course, but it's nowhere near as big. I mean, you mentioned another company that, that really could be easily offloaded. Yeah. I mean, so there's there's Arm, which is a big chip maker. Um, mm. It's the British kind of Cambridge-based company. Um, and he does seem to be looking at ways to monetize that. There was talk yeah. of a, a, maybe a sale to NVIDIA, although that's going to have all kinds of antitrust problems. Um, he could mm. IPO it. There's a, various other potential M&A partners there. Um, and then there's also the, the second biggest asset he has, which is a kind of old-fashioned um, telecom wireless operator, also called SoftBank mm. in Japan. Yeah. There's no particular reason for him to hold that. Um, he used to hold a big stake of Sprint, which subsequently became T-Mobile, and he's now offloading that. So clearly, kind of old-fashioned telecoms is not is not a strategic priority for him. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he sells that down a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it really does call into question that, that the whole point of, of SoftBank Group, okay, you still got the Vision Funds in there as well, but I mean, it's very reminiscent of Yahoo, isn't it? Which ended up with, um, well, basically just its its own value being being dwarfed by yeah. or being de- determined. And in fact, its entire future being determined by its stake in other companies. Yeah, and it's in very end, interesting. Basically, you know, just uh, after several different CEOs decided to uh, to bite the bullet and sell. Yeah, I mean, I think he would he would really resist that that comparison yeah. and would say there's a lot of value in the Vision Fund. But the point is, investors disagree because yeah. if there was a lot of value in the Vision Fund, it would be worth more than you know zero, mm. which is which is the value investors are attaching to it at the moment. Mm. All right, so final question for you then, Liam. Let's put your predicting hat back on. You got this right twice in a row for our annual predictions books at the end of the past two years. What do you think happens over the next year here? Do you think he ends up selling? A much bigger stake of Alibaba, or do you think he sort of pushes on ahead and tries to to, to keep going as he's been going the past few few months? I think he will. I think I think the phrase will be salami slice. He'll 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 shave off chunks of the Alibaba holding when he needs cash. Um, it's still enormous. He can do that for a very long time, mm. um, and then he will be. I think he'll be very opportunistic with with Arm. If a good opportunity comes up for an IPO, tech valuations are very high right now. Um, I can see him just pressing the button on that. Mm. Um, he, he he seems to be getting ready for that. And Elliot's sitting on um, at least a, a, a doubling gain here. So do, do you see um, Elliot management putting any more pressure on if if that's all he continues to do? It's been a fairly um, friendly bet for them so far. They basically put out a, a series of kind of demands, which was basically what what Son ended up doing. 
um, in terms of selling down and, and buying back shares. Um, so they they have to make a decision now. Do they kind of cash out with a you know very handsome gain, mm-hmm. or do they say actually there's still a lot of value here? Um, and we're not afraid to, to, to turn this into a big fight. So we're, we're going to push you to, to do something big with Alibaba. I would guess they just they just cash in because SoftBank's um, Son's stake is so big in SoftBank that he'd be very hard to beat a shareholder vote if they, if they right. wanted to, right. to oppose him. Yeah. All right, Liam, thanks very much for that. Um, we'll uh, come back to you uh, maybe sooner than a year, but certainly within a year, we'll come back and see if your latest predictions on SoftBank come true. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Cheers, Anthony. Bye. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Liam, Gina, Sharon and Peter for sharing their wisdom. And I doff my hat to our excellent producer, Freddie Joyner. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever else you snag your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about our shows. The Views Room is taking a break for a few weeks, so join us again in September. <laughs>